This is a this is a fundamentally important question. It's not something trivial. I really don't know what to make of it. Hey everyone, Paul here. You know, today's episode is going to be a bit different. I am actually grabbing the audio from a video I put out on YouTube this week, exploring a interesting point in a conversation between Jordan Peterson, John Verveke, Bishop Robert Barron, and Jonathan Peugeot. Uh, I've been doing some video commentary on their video just to kind of do a little bit of a theological response, engage with some of the ideas. And there was a section in the video that I didn't want to skip, and it was a part where um, Peterson made some pretty wild and bold claims about uh, the connect- a connection between psychedelics and the book of Revelation. He's really gotten into this immortality key book, had the author Brian Moresco on Moresco on the on his podcast on his YouTube channel before. Um, it's just frankly, it's just not serious scholarship. It's pseudo history. You'll find no serious scholarly engagement with the work. The only scholarly engagement I've come across has been from the Journal of Psychedelics and. Um, and their review of it was by, you know, it had some pretty scathing critiques and it's a lack of historical um, trustworthiness, uh, how the author just uh, contorts facts to fit his thesis, stuff that would never pass any PhD level thesis. Anyways, I find it interesting that Peter's gotten in, Peterson's gotten into this. I certainly have no problem exploring psychedelics and the connection between psychedelics and religion. It's something I've talked about quite a bit on my podcast, but I did want to bring out some of the nuanced critiques I had with the the way sometimes that conversation can go, um, especially this sort of immortality key thesis that it's like, you know, psychedelics have secretly been behind, you know, the, the beginnings of Christianity and other major religions and philosophical movements where there just doesn't seem to be any sort of real historical grounding in those claims. So anyways, today, the audio for the rest of today's episode is from that video. Uh, I encourage you to go and subscribe on YouTube. It's something that I'm exploring and doing more of. In fact, YouTube was the place I actually got started when I initially started doing conversations and um, doing lectures, Uh, but I just found the audio-only side of the podcast to be far more productive for me, and frankly, I just wasn't ever happy with the quality of video content that I was putting out very early on. I just didn't have the right setup for it. So I've made some improvements in that end, and I feel like at least it's aesthetically um, a little bit more pleasing to look at. And there's a bunch of um, a bunch of opportunities that the video format affords us to be able to actually engage with the visual medium when that seems appropriate to do so, like engaging with a video and doing some commentary on a video. Of course, you also find on my YouTube channel there are a handful of video essays exploring things like. Interstellar, uh, the film Interstellar, and engagement with ideas in the work of Charles Taylor and James K.E. Smith, and how you might be able to find that in Interstellar. I did a video on the Dark Knight and symbolism of the Dark Knight years ago, and I also did a, um, a couple other video essays. One, the most watched video I have on YouTube is a video essay exploring the philosophy and theology of Batman v Superman, the Zack Snyder film. 
And then also I did a video, I think last year, um, or whenever the end of season two of The Mandalorian came out exploring some ideas in ethics and virtue ethics as it relates to the character of Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. So uh, I'm occasionally going to keep doing those sorts of video essays, but I'm going to also put out more video content on YouTube and uh, try to connect with a different demographic of people too that uh, maybe only exclusively use YouTube. So if you're on YouTube, you use that uh, app and you use that social media platform, I encourage you to connect and subscribe over there. But I hope you enjoy the commentary today on that Four Horsemen of Meaning conversation with Jordan Peterson, John Verveke, Bishop Barron, and Jonathan Peugeot. Hey everyone, Paul here. I've been doing a bit of a commentary on the Four Horsemen of Meaning video that was released, uh, it was about a week ago or so, by uh, Jordan Peterson on his channel, where he sat down and had a Zoom convo with Bishop Barron, John Verveke, and Jonathan Pajot. I've done two parts of commentary already, and I think maybe in those uh, two parts of commentary, I only got a few minutes into the video. So I'm going to jump ahead today to about, let's see, where are we at? We're at the 55 mark, 55 minutes, 30 seconds uh, into this conversation where they're going to get into exploring the nature of religious experience, talk about psychedelics and a few other things. So I wanted to give a bit of theological response to that section of the conversation. So I'm just going to jump right into that again, 55 minutes, 30 seconds in or so. What is the ontological significance of that, let's say? I mean, mm. one of the, leaving aside the, the truth or lack thereof of various religious claims, one of the weaknesses, I believe, of the rational atheist's position is that, first of all, that their argument is carried out almost entirely in the propositional landscape. Yes. They treat religious, they treat religion that is not just true of those in the sort of new atheist camp. This has been a problem for those like myself who operate in the Protestant tradition. Uh, what, what Jordan Peterson's referring to here are the four P's of Verveke's uh, four P's of knowing. And one of those P's is the propositional. We certainly know propositions. We come to know particular things via acceptance of truth claims that, that are proposed. For example, we talked about this, I think either in the first or second breakdown video, or maybe it was actually in the video I did on um, Verveke and theology, put that out recently as well. But the claim that cats are mammals is a proposition. It's a truth claim. It's a certain kind of knowledge. It's very different than the kind of knowledge one would have if they actually had a cat as a pet, which I don't, if they had a cat as a pet and it was a, a very dear part of their life, they're gonna engage with that cat on a different level. Um, Peterson's point is an important point, but I also need to say that part of the game that the new atheists have played has been um, a, a game that has been set at the table by, um, you know, modernist, Protestant thought, post-enlightenment thought. 
It's especially been true in my particular tra uh, tradition in evangelical thought, where the in-group, out-group markers are largely based upon um, vocal or written adherence to a set of propositional statements, typically a, a statement of faith, maybe a creedal statement or a doctrine statement. It's really not uncommon, even if you work in a Christian institution, let's say a Christian university, a Christian high school, I've taught in um, private Christian high schools for, for quite some time. I mean, I've been out of teaching for a while, but I think I taught for 11 or 12 years in those settings. And it was very common that as part of your contract, you would actually sign off on a statement of faith. And that statement of faith was a bit of a, a acknowledgement that you would participate in this particular community um, by the rules of the community. That's certainly one way of thinking about it. But it was also to know, um, to try to ascertain whether or not you had a particular vision of reality that was coherent with the broader culture of that school or institution. It wouldn't be uncommon for someone who takes a job as a pastor at a church to sign off on some sort of statement of faith like that as well. And statements of faith are primarily about propositional knowledge. It's about propositional claims. It has very little connection to the other domains of knowledge, such as procedural knowledge or uh, participatory knowledge. And so this is something that we could actually take all the way back to, um, to even the Protestant Reformation, where we see shifts in the liturgy, in the life of worship, in the liturgical practices that shape certain spiritual disciplines, or the, the spiritual disciplines, I should say, shape certain um, spiritual propensities, and they also shape worldviews and ideologies. And one of the shifts that happened in the Reformation was a shift around what is the climactic centerpiece of Christian worship. And the shift of that, the shift took place, um, and it wasn't universal. In fact, both, both Luther and Calvin advocated for regular Eucharist, regular communion as the centerpiece of worship weekly. Um, I think Luther or Calvin, um, maybe even both, <laughs> but I, I know at least one of them said they would take it daily if they could. <clears throat> what ended up happening, though, is because of theological disputes around the Eucharist and and perhaps a, 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 a sort of polemic um, uh, response to the centrality of the Roman Catholic Mass in worship that many Protestant groups adapted a very different attitude towards worship and liturgy, and they moved away from the Eucharist, from the Lord's Table, which is a much more participatory experience, it's procedural as well, to having um, the proclamation of Scripture, and, in, and not even the proclamation of Scripture, it was public preaching. The public preaching and rhetoric took center stage as really being the climax of worship. And you can see that today if you go into pretty much any evangelical church, um, and this is changing, there's been sort of a like a sacramental resurgence even in evangelical churches, especially among people my age and younger. But if you go into any evangelical church, um, you'll probably find that the most amount of time spent in worship is spent on the sermon. It certainly seems like it's the climactic moment of the liturgy. What that ends up doing to people as you practice that over and over, week in and week out, is even without saying it, what it ends up implying in that practice is that the most important thing that we need to have is the right 
access to right information and that access to right information, if we can internalize it and if we can agree with it, it would produce radically transformative power. Now, and now I really love preaching. I, th I think it's valuable. I'm in a sense doing it here, though this wouldn't be preaching behind a pulpit. Uh, this is certainly rhetoric. It's certainly informational. This isn't poetry. It's not narrative. Uh, it, and, and so I really see it as valuable. But when we talk about, when Peterson talks about the, the new atheists um, and the new atheists' insistence essentially on propositional truth as being the primary, if not only, mode of truth, I just want to bring up that that's something that uh, I think there, there's rules to the game that they had not developed in and of themselves, but they were playing by rules that were largely shaped by the broader Protestant culture of the West. as if it's a set of propositions that are in some sense expressed in a manner contrary to the propositions that constitute mm -hmm. science. And then I think, well, wait, wait a minute, guys, you're, you're missing the point here. And there's a propositional element to religious claim, and I often think that's the weakest element. of. But, but what do you make of the fact that people have religious experiences? What do you make of that exactly? Well, you say, well, that's epiphenomenal. It's like, well, yeah, is it really? Like, are you so sure about that? So let me give you an example. So I talked to Brian Murarescu and Carl Rock a while back, and they'd be doing some investigation into the Eleusinian mysteries. And uh, Murarescu's book is predicated on the idea that... Here we go. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him finish his thought here. Um... But we're going to have to have some talk about what he's about to say and this immortality key book. All right, let's. I'll let him finish uh, his his thought here. What the Greeks were doing was using a an LSD spiked wine essentially mm -hmm. to produce a collective mystical experience that, and they had technologies to harness that so it was collective, and that that constituted the core of the Eleusinian mysteries, and that that. Enterprise was practiced by the ancient Greeks for thousands of years continuously and that that Experience was at the basis of the unity of Greek culture But more than that that it was the fountain from which Greek wisdom flowed and so It's a revelatory hypothesis By which I mean sorry. It's a, it's a hypothesis about the function of revelation in the society if these drug-induced dreamlike states of religious experience are the fountain from which a culture like the Greek culture emerges. Well, what are we supposed to make of that ontologically? I mean, we're great admirers of the Greeks, right? We, we see our culture as, as certainly the rational element of it, and perhaps a tremendous amount of the aesthetic element as deeply rooted in Greek presuppositions. It's like, well, is that, are the Eleusinian mysteries, that religious element, is that an aberration? Or is it is it that which in, that within which everything else is embedded? This is a this is a fundamentally important question. It's not something trivial. I, I really don't know what to make of it because. All right, I need to engage with this on two levels. First level would be to give some affirmation of the value. Um, value might not be the right word, but the efficacy of psychedelics of in 
of the way that ingesting certain chemicals and substances can alter our state of consciousness in a pretty radical way. I want to affirm that <laughs> that's a very real thing. And there's long, there were long been suspicions of even things like, um, you know, the Oracle at Delphi, that perhaps the Oracle at Delphi, there, there may have been some hallucinogenic gas escaping from, um, the, 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 the cracks in the ground. It, that's, that's long, that's long been a theory. Um, we also know as there has been more, proper research done on psychedelics and mystical experiences. I think of the work over at Johns Hopkins University and other places. We know that people can have profound religious-like experiences, experiences that we could say are self-transcendent experiences. Um, what Verveke calls, I think, borrowing the language of L.A. Paul, um, encountering the sacred there are people that have had radically transformative experiences via the ingestion of some sort of substance, the inhalation of a substance that alters their state of consciousness in a pretty radical way, in a way that um, that, that, that might be different in some sense than traditional religious practices, but I don't think it's entirely different. So I want to affirm that. Um, I want to affirm that that is certainly true. There's certainly some interesting evidence that points to the long-term transformative effects for some people of having a psilocybin experience that they would produce things that I might even say in a Christian context are fruits of the spirit, um, that they become more loving and, and, and joyful and peaceful and that that transformation goes on long after the fact. I don't want to deny that. What I do want to, um, maybe we should say even a little bit more about that. I, I don't want to take too much time on this because I'm, I'm planning on dedicating a lot more time to this particular subject in part two of the theology and John Verveke video series I'm going to do. But we do need to maybe discuss this a little bit and discuss maybe um, one particular theory of consciousness and alter state of states of consciousness. I am of the school of thought that is probably most akin to the uh, the philosopher David Bentley Hart. He's in um, he's a Christian philosopher. He's in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, and for Hart, Hart's understanding of consciousness is almost that um, maybe dare I say even like consciousness is all is is fundamental. Um, it, it certainly isn't reducible to physical processes alone. For heart, our consciousness, our our experience of consciousness is a real, but all by albeit finite experience of God's consciousness, uh, which would be the the ground of all experience and would contain all experiences and um, in in reality. Now we have a finite, and because of again, in I would say in Christian theology, not only a finite, but we have a flawed perception, even our, our consciousness, our focal point, our, we we miss the mark in what we should be aiming our sights at regularly. That's what harmartia means, though the one of the New Testament, the Greek words in the New Testament for sin, it means missing the mark. And so what we need to have, and I talked about this in part one of that um, theology and John Verveke series, what we need to have is metanoia. We need to have a changing of the mind. We need to have our frame altered and reoriented back so that our aims would be oriented in the proper direction. So 
I think there's something about our even our state of consciousness that has a propensity towards egotism, towards self-centeredness. So much of our energies and attentions, our conscious energies and unconscious energies are devoted to survival. And that's a pretty big deal, right? If we don't survive, we're no longer conscious. So we devote so much of our energy and attention to that. And I think part of perhaps the that the way that the world has fallen is that that ego, that um that can move into dangerous levels of pride and egocentrism where we're willing to risk the well-being of others for our own well-being and this is i think at the maybe at the very core of what harmartia or sin is all about but some sometimes what we need to do not sometimes but the i think the key to metanoia is in a sense an altered state of consciousness there has been throughout, not just the Christian tradition, but others as well. I think of even uh, Sufi Muslims. I'm, I'm not making the case that those are the same experiences. I'm not a unitive pluralist like John Hick. Um, but I am saying that there have been across religious traditions, emphases on particular practices, let's say something as simple as prayer, which can alter our state of consciousness enough to maybe move ourselves outside of our typical base level survival concerns and to start moving us on beyond into this level maybe of what we might say self-transcendence or transcending those selfish concerns into being attentive to the other, being attentive to the cares and concerns and needs of other people, being attentive to God. So we might have prayer, we might have, you know, a big one that's been really, really important in my life is, um, is the aesthetic experience of, of community worship in as it's expressed in song and in music. That's been a central part of my life and my vocation for quite some time, especially having grown up in the charismatic tradition and Pentecostal tradition where music was such a central component of, of religious worship. There's no doubt in my mind that though that, um, that experience, the aesthetic experience, the communal experience has certainly produced in me many times radically shifted, altered states of consciousness. I have no doubts about it and I've been in plenty of contexts especially in my charismatic and Pentecostal days, where those altered states of consciousness made manifest in the room produced in people effects that were very, very similar to the sorts of um, visions um, and sights and sounds people have experienced using hallucinogenic and, and psychedelic drugs. So I'm really, really interested in these points because I think what we need to do is we have to have this machinery, this self-preservation machinery. We have to have it upset. We have to have that frame disrupted in order for us to actually move outside of egotistical self-preservation concerns and to actually take on, again, I'm saying this as a Christian and, and from the, the, the Christian position, to in, in order to, um, to reach full maturation in the image and likeness of Christ, we have to move beyond these self-centered concerns and we actually need to follow the pattern of Christ, which is laying down his life, washing his disciples' feet. John the Revelator, and, and Jordan Peterson is going to talk about the book of Revelation in a way that I think is very ill-informed in a little bit. But John the Revelator sees on the throne a slain lamb as ruler of the cosmos which is always to me just such a wild picture because we would be tempted to think that whatever or whoever 
slayed that lamb is the ruler, the true ruler of the cosmos. But that is not the Christian story. And John says, no, there's a slain lamb enthroned. And so um, th- this, this is really central to us. So we have to move outside of our egotistical concerns. We have to take up our cross. The Apostle Paul says that true worship is to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. So this would be central um, to our particular, the particular story of, of, of the church across various denominations, whether this is Orthodox uh, Catholic like Bishop Barron, Roman Catholic like Bishop Barron, or a, a Protestant like um, a Paul Vanderclay, who is obviously well-versed in the dialogues happening in this video and other, um, in other spaces of, of the internet. So I'm very, I'm very much aware that there needs to be something that takes place in us that kind of shifts our focal point and makes us maybe more aware. One of the downsides to this, I would say, and again, I guess I said I wasn't going to get too far into the weeds on this, but here I am. <laughs> One of the downsides I'd say of this is that I think um, what we can experience, whether it's in traditional religious experiences, but certainly in um, what I might say are the shortcuts to encountering um, an experience of transcendence, be honest, the shortcuts that come via, uh, you know, we take the elevator up real quick um, by doing a heroic dose of psilocybin or DMT or something. And I think one of the potential downsides to this is that self-transcendence, to simply transcend beyond the self, to have a taste of transcendence, to move beyond our egotistical concerns, doesn't automatically put us into contact with God. As a Christian, and this is not just something held by Christians, but in other religious traditions, there are intermediary agencies, spiritual principalities and powers that I would say exist in some sort of layer or level of reality that is um, intermediary in some sense. I think this would be the this would be the the the, the realm of. Um, spiritual beings, spiritual agencies, principalities and powers to use the Christian language. But I think this is probably when people were reaching out or maybe even having psychedelic experiences and encountering entities, which by the way, there's a significant number of people who, when they have a profound transformative psychedelic experience, they actually have um, what they would say are encounters with entities. The Journal of Pharmacology, uh, I believe this was, oh gosh, when was the study? Sometime in the last few years um, that uh, they did a study on those who, and this was a self-reported study. They had a, did a study of those who um, who had uh, had psychedelic experiences, transformative psychedelic experiences. It was a survey done of 2,561 people who had taken DMT. And in that, 56% of the people surveyed said they encountered an entity during their psychedelic trip. Of those people, 81% of those people said the experience was more real than everyday waking consciousness, and 96% of respondents said that they believed the entities that they encountered were conscious beings themselves. And you can hear these sorts of anecdotes all the time, whether you're listening to Joe Rogan or you talk to anybody. These, um, the aliens, the elves, the DMT elves, 
Um, These are very, very interesting because in some sense, and I know not from personal experience, but from numerous conversations with psychonauts, that some of these experiences do not produce in people that lasting transformative metanoia. Sometimes these entities and agencies that they encounter produce in them torment, um, that produce in them, um, they, they become very manipulative. And you can certainly hear those stories as well. That's not to discount the whole experience. That is to say that I think well within the Christian tradition is a framework for us to be able to understand those experiences in a way that says, yes, to move beyond yourself, to to enter into this domain of spirit is a uh, sacred and certainly transcendent experience, but not everything that you're going to encounter out there <laughs> is for your good. So we should be we should be cautious of that. Um, I think there's a word of caution there as well. But now we we do need to talk about the other part of this, and this is the 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 part that Peterson um, brings up, you know, brings up the work of the, the the author of this book called The Immortality Key, Brian Moresco, Moresco. And, um, you know, it's just so interesting to see this thing blow up after being on the Joe Rogan show. Um, there are, I am not, uh, my undergrad was in history. So I, um, I certainly have, and I taught ancient history courses for years as well. Um, but I, I certainly can't say I have the expertise to, to talk about the, the entirety of these Greek myths and Greek Greek culture and ancient Greek history. But what I can speak to is the shoddy research of um, this author when it comes to his claims about communion, which certainly um, Bishop Barron is going to briefly address later with Peterson. Um, The author makes this claim in his book, and he brought it up with Joe Rogan as well, that in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he makes the claim that 1 Corinthians 11 this portion about Paul's le- this portion in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, warning them about um, taking taking the, um, the the communion elements in a way that's unworthy of the cup, that they may reap death upon themselves. And he tries to make this case that there's a there is there's sound evidence in the Bible. <laughs> there's a there's reason to believe that early Christian communities were ingesting some form of psychedelics, and that's what Paul is really kind of warning them about in First Corinthians eleven. And this is just it's so it, it's absolutely ridiculous that first year Bible students can take this apart and even. Um, Boy, I just even if I think someone of Peterson's intellect, if he sat down and read even just the entire chapter of First Corinthians eleven, he would see that the, what's being discussed here in First Corinthians eleven has nothing to do with psychedelics. Paul's concerned that they're going to drink a wine that might cause them to die. That's that's this Marescu's claim. Um, and that maybe they've been imbibing the wrong psychedelic mixture in their communion wine is totally off base. What's really happening in 1 Corinthians 11 is this. From the earliest records we know, presently available, we know that Christian community was centered around, Christian worship was centered around the celebration of the Lord's table of the Eucharist. 
What was different, though, in the first couple centuries was that, um, at least in the first century, I should say, is that this meal wasn't just like we're going to take a piece of bread and have a sip of wine. It was more like a, a community potluck. Um, and this is where the entire Christian community, which spanned different ethnicities, it spanned um, different demog- uh, like economic statuses within the, the social hierarchy. So you had people, and this was very, very peculiar in the Roman world, that you'd have rich people eating with poor people. You'd have people from different nationalities together, all part of this family, this new family, this Christian community. And so Christian community was really, really diverse. It spanned ethnic and economic spectrum. The problem, though, that was happening at this church in Corinth was not about psychedelic mixtures. It's actually really easy to discern when you read 1 Corinthians 11. What was actually happening was um, you had as part of Christian worship, the climactic moment of Christian worship was the potluck. <laughs> it was this it was this participatory experience. It definitely was a mystical experience, but it was also symbolically really powerful because you had people across um, ethnicities and across socioeconomic statuses, statuses, you had them gathered together for one meal, claiming that each other were brothers and sisters. And that was a radical statement in the first century in that Greco-Roman Mediterranean world. What was happening, though, in Corinth, and it's really easy to see this in 1 Corinthians 11, it was that at the potluck, those who were of the lower income status typically had to work in the morning. And they would get to worship, they would get to communion time later. And so one thing that was happening was that the upper status, the upper class, the higher status people would be able to be there on time because they didn't have to work like the lower status people did. And at the potluck, they were like eating all the food and drinking all the wine. And at that point, they sometimes the lower class people would show up and the upper class people had drunk all of the wine so much so that they were getting drunk at the church potluck, right? It's right there. Just read it. You can actually read it here in Uh, verses 17 through 22, and I'll read it for you. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have uh, God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, One person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. It's so clear. Like, you just have to read the whole chapter. (laughs) And again, this is like basic Bible student stuff that you would learn in like undergrad classes on how to read the Bible. The problem isn't that they're drinking the wrong psychedelic wine. The problem is that they're still acting under the cultural norms of their day, which place different levels of value of people based on their ethnicity and their social status and the, the social status hierarchy ladder. So when they renounced those ways of thinking in their baptism, which is what they were supposed to have done, They are now turning back on what they've renounced by having these potlucks that are essentially acting as private dinner parties, excluding those in the community 
who were a little bit lower on the social status ladder. That's what's going on. And so the author of The Immortality Key, he's got no um, experience. He's got no credential. I shouldn't say experience. He has no credentials in history or theology. I believe he's got a law degree. And, and that's not to say that you have to you know, have a PhD in subject matter in order to be able to make any contributions in the field that you're, that you're interested in. That's certainly not what I'm suggesting, but I'm saying these sorts of books seem to come around they, they, they become a fad, a flash in the pan every decade or so. And there's a reason why they don't reach mainstream status in universities and this isn't because there's some sort of conspiracy to block out all of the possible goodness that psychedelics can bring. It's just because it's really poor scholarship. All right, let's get back here into um, hearing a little more Peterson and what he's going to talk about with the book of Revelation and other things. It's, um, it's interesting. <laughs> it, it throws the whole problem of, well, the ontological significance of psychedelic substances into the mix and that's a thorny problem if there ever was one and that's a problem of the lower meeting the higher that's for sure right these chemical substances that can reliably induce overwhelming mystical experiences you can just set that aside and say well that's a form of insanity uh, but it, it's exactly. not schizophrenia it, it's it's not obviously within the category of of mental illness and then and to you know to Murray Rescue's hypothesis runs quite contrary to that. Not only is it not insanity, it's it was a vital source of of revelatory knowledge, philosophical knowledge, and and got the ball rolling in some sense. So God only knows what to make of that. But well, there's I mean, there's lots of experimental work being done on this right now. The Griffith Lab. I I, I did a, an experiment in my lab. Right, it's not epiphenomenal. Uh, people who have more mystical experiences have more meaning in life. Reliable correlation. But yeah, they become more open. Yeah, their personality open, undergoes a yeah, permanent transformation. Well, at least long-standing. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. Well, yeah, a couple yeah. of years, anyways. Like yeah. it's and it's not trivial. It's yeah, one no, standard it, yes, deviation it, it, increase. It's a big difference, man. And you have all of Yaden's work showing that when people have these experiences. Uh, they will reliably improve their life. That's their feed doing that, not mine. My apologies. <laughs> um, John's work on this is great, and John brings a lot of balance. I've talked to John about psychedelics before, and I think he's got a very healthy approach to them. He wants there to be continued controlled experimentation, additional research. He's very um, critical of sort of autodidactic DIY spirituality where people, you know, think they've met God because they, you know, they dropped acid in their stepdad's, you know, driveway sitting in their, you know, their Ford Mustang or something like he's, he's, he's very um, leery of that and also very open to traditional religious practices as a way of disrupting the frame, uh, altering states of consciousness. So I'm appreciative of John's work on this. So, so a good friend of mine, who's a genius, by the way, um, and so I listen to what he has to say, and he's a technological genius. He talked to me about his, his mushroom experiences when he was a mixed up teenager, you know, engaging in various forms of delinquent activity. And he said that from the 
after his psychedelic experience, his sense of what was right and what was wrong was massively heightened, and he abided by it from then on. Yeah, yeah. And like I look at his life, it's like, well, you know, you you've accomplished a fair bit, and he's a very solid person and quite the monster in in the most positive way. And you know, you can't just dis dispense with that. It's like, well, it, it taught him the difference between good and evil, and then he abided by that for the course of his life. And and you know, when 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 Griffiths Griffiths people have his laboratory subjects have these mystical experiences and they quit smoking. Yeah. And you think. And if you take a look at this work, you'll see like it's, uh, so it's ontonormativity. People encounter what they call the really real. Um, and, and it's really unusual because normally what we do is we take these experiences that are disconnected from our everyday intelligibility, like a dream. And we say, it's not real because it doesn't fit in. People do the opposite with these experiences. They say that was really real and all of this has to change to get closer to it. Now, I think there's a way though of starting. And that is at the heart of the Christian conversion experience, which an emphasis on conversion is one of the more unique features of what has been like, let's uh, say like the classic Bebbington definition of evangelical, uh, divorced from the more modern political <laughs> implications and culture war implications of that. To be an evangelical, one of the emphases was an emphasis on conversionism. And you can take that all the way back to the Apostle Paul and his radical conversion experience on the road to Damascus. We also see it in Augustine's life. Augustine had this radical conversion experience, this moment where he encountered God in such a transformative way that that experience he came back from, just like Verveke's talking about, a genuine mystical experience, a going up the mountain, uh, ascending the mountain, to use the language of Mirsoff, Wolf. That experience was so real that everything else seems less real in comparison, or um, there's just no way you could be talked out of that experience. I know those experiences firsthand, and I also know that there are people that have had these positive, like really positive, transformative experiences in. Um, via pathways that I have not tried before, especially when it comes to chemically induced um, uh, taking in a, a substance like um, ayahuasca or something like that. I know that those things are a possibility. I know that they can produce profound effects and transformative effects. And to really be a mystical experience, I think that's one of the qualifications qualifications is that there's a sense of realness attached to it and this is how that differs from other altered states of consciousness if you have too much bourbon on a friday night um and you you know like you get drunk you know it you typically that next day you know well i was drunk and anything i said or maybe even thought that night was probably because of the alcohol in me and people may even have similar experiences with marijuana where um they go yeah that uh, that i know that wasn't real but these these mystical experiences that verveki's talking about the ones associated with long-term lasting transformation one of the key features of that is people come back from that experience and it's like that has changed that's more real than this and it, it can be so disorienting in the most positive way <laughs>
I'm not, this isn't going to be a complete answer, Jordan, but I think part of the reason why we find it problematic, these kinds of experiences, and this is what some of the empirical work I did showed, is because we've reduced rationality to inference. And we've forgotten that rationality is broader and includes insight. And if you think of how an insight works, and you can see, mm -hmm. you can see a continuum between insight, flow, transformative experience, even the flow experience has mystical aspects to it. And people get into it on a fairly reliable basis, right? And what we, what we have to say is the core of rationality is not inferential coherence, it's the capacity for self-correction. And insight is one of our most mm -hmm. powerful ways of self-correcting. I point to your own work. You showed in some of your experiments that, you know, that one of the things that predicts insight is the anomalous card sorting task, right? And you also showed that that predicts how well people are, are, are overcoming self-deception. You did experiments on both of those. Right. And that's not a coincidence. Insight is one of the fundamental machineries by which we overcome how we fundamentally misframed. It's a fundamental self-correction. We need a model of rationality that includes them both. Let me ask you about that. Let's go back to this nested idea. Right. I, can I just say something about psychedelics, yes, please which to me is important to mention, is that. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are talking about it right now. And I did, you know, I did watch that interview with Murarescu. And I think that in this question of psychedelics, I think we're actually seeing an, an, an increase of the problem that we're talking about, this kind of alienating problem, which is that psychedelics seems like a very nice solution because there it is. There's the mushroom. I can analyze the chemical substance. I I can, I can. So when we talk about the Eleusinian mysteries, now everybody's excited to talk about the spiked wine. But no one cares to talk about the entire ritual in which this was embedded. And it becomes this kind of weird reductive thing in which mm -hmm. the tool that we can identify, which is, you know, you can you can put it in a box and you can you can nicely uh, identify it. Then everybody's attention goes there right now because of our kind of materialism and our and our. And so I, I find it very difficult because. You know, what, what we saw psychedelics do in the 60s is that ripping open the veil, supposedly, in a world where the ritual around, let's say, the coherence of society, the place where society coheres together and engages in a common ritual and in common attention and in common storytelling. And then we kind of throw this stuff out into a world that is individualistic and based on, on everybody's own little whims is not necessary, is going to, I, I think, and I, we saw it happen, is going to create these experiences that are frameless and instead of binding, will we'll, we'll continue to kind of fragment our society. I'm really worried about this psychedelic. Can I, thing, yeah, can I just jump mm -hmm. in? On, I'm sort of thinking out loud, because I... I thought those were great points by Jonathan Pajoho, who I know some of you have reached out to me and asked me if I know him or if I've had, ever had him on for an interview. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know him personally at all. Um, and uh, anyways, but I thought I thought those were excellent points. The the sort of fast tracking mechanism. So let me backtrack here. I've already confessed. There's no doubt in my mind because <laughs> all of our spiritual experiences are embodied experiences. There is no like hyper gnostic. I'm like divorced from my materiality. 
and my materiality, the physical body, and my the physical chemicals that get released in me, and these flow state experiences and alternate state of consciousness that they aren't attached to the spiritual phenomena themselves. That that that's it's ridiculous. As a Christian, you have to hold to these things. You have to hold to these this this deep truth, especially somebody that worships an incarnate Son of God, a God in the fl- the God in the flesh. Jesus Christ is you have to see that all of our spiritual experiences get mediated through our bodies. It gets mediated through our brains. It gets mediated in in our flesh and in our blood. And so there's no doubt that if you introduce a you know unique concoction of chemicals and and uh, into your body that you can actually alter your state of consciousness in a way that is really going to produce a higher sense of openness and maybe decrease egotism, et cetera, et cetera. There's no doubt about that. There should be concerns, though, about whether or not fast-tracking all of those experiences in um, and simply being able to take a substance is the best route to go about having those experiences. In fact, there may be something to be said about the virtue that is produced in one's life of having a dark night of the soul experience, which all of the great mystics talk about, even though they don't use the, the exact terminology of St. John of the Cross, right? That, that coined that term, the dark, night of the dark night of the soul. Just because you're able to encounter God, just because you have these religious practices and spiritual disciplines that make you more aware of the spirits working in the world, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen all the time. And in fact, one of the things that might be most beneficial in a a very odd way for the production of virtues in our life is to actually have periods of time where we feel nothing at all, where we have no sense of the transcendence, where we can't just take this contemplative escalator, you know, and just sky, you know, just go up that escalator and encounter uh, a transcendent Uh, more transcendent awareness of of God and his nearness, that there are times in which that that experience might need to be removed from us for a time being. That, And maybe in some ways, I think there can be, if you think of the contemplative experience as the, um, it is the telescope that we look up into the sky and we get this transcendent sense of awe and wonder that that the practice of meditation is the microscope by which we we want to come and, and look at the the goodness of God in the world underneath our eyes in the minutiae and in the small. And um, so that contemplative movement is a movement upward and outward and the, 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 the meditative practice, the practice of meditation, which is there is a Christian, there are Christian expressions of meditation that, that cause us to go, I need to look at the mundane and the bland and the, um, you know, a great, I think one of the great filmmakers that captures this, the, the, both of these so well and connects them to is Terrence Malick. One of my favorite films is Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. And it captures both the contemplative movement that art can help us have this, this movement of awe and wonder. And, and, and it's the telescope. It, it draws our attention up to the heavens to see far beyond us. But it's also, his work is also a microscope. And it causes us to think about the mundane, the boring, the bland, and we need both. And so, I, you know, I think 
a, a good hesitation that we might have before we just like green light um, worship services with DMT and shrooms is to go, maybe there's something to the virtue of the dark night of the soul. And maybe it makes us practice this 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 the spiritual discipline of meditation and i don't i don't mean in the the strict sense that like verveki teaches meditative meditative practices i'm more talking about the 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 conceptual practice of meditation which is essentially again downscaling contemplations upscaling meditations downscaling and so having those experiences where we can't have the the contemplative elevator to just fast track us into this spiritual state of awe and wonder is for our good and the other point that uh, Peugeot brings up which is really really important is that there is concerns about how we do this as lone individuals that we can do these DIY spiritualities that actually don't um, that don't require community they don't require again the virtue producing <laughs> and I laugh when I say that because sometimes it doesn't feel like it's producing virtue at all Christian community is really really hard and messy and if you've been in a Christian community over the last couple of years oh man you know that especially here in the US you know how tough and how messy that's been. You, you, if you don't, all you need to do is like just walk into a church and ask like five different people what they think about masks or vaccines or Trump or Biden or no, don't do that. You're going to stir up a fight. But there's something good about that because we actually can't um, make at the center of our community. We can't center ourselves around particular political ideologies or a politician. Um, in fact, Christian community cause, calls us to make Christ at the center. And those other things, it doesn't mean those other things dissolve, that we all share the same worldview. In fact, it puts us into a difficult place of tension in conflict and that to live in that place is really really good and i think i think um jonathan peugeot's encouragement to make us think about the dangers of like uh just a, you just take a, a simple pill or you take a a mushroom and now you can get fast tracked into transcendence but you do it by yourself in your basement you know in between playing call of duty games is like i think it's a very wise caution can i just jump mm -hmm. in and i'm sort of thinking out loud because i you know, I really loved in what both Jordan and John were saying is the the way the mystical is being described. I, there's something really right in that. I think when you have a true mystical experience, meaning an experience of, of God, of the sacred, it does have those effects that it convinces you that's really real as opposed to the world that's it's real, but it's not as real as that. That now I'm clearer about good and evil. I mean, the authentically mystical, I think, has that. But but. When you talk about drugs and all that, look, for me, it's a closed book. I've never experienced that myself directly. But I'd also say this. The great mystics in the Western tradition, think of John of the Cross especially, who's my go-to guy. John of the Cross probably had what we call extraordinary experiences. Certainly his colleague, Teresa of Avila, did. I mean, visions and that sort of thing. But what did John of the Cross You want to talk about wild, mystical experiences? <laughs> Just do some... Some reading on old Teresa there. <laughs> um, maybe if you have um, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, I know a lot of you in, um, you know, that, that maybe engage with the work of Paul Vanderclay, and maybe that's how you've stumbled upon my channel 
probably have uh, Tom Holland's Dominion in your um, your library, and he he talks about Teresa and um, very wild, very wild um, mystical experiences that um, incorporate eros <laughs> i mean not arrows as an a r r o s but eros e r o s and christ and it's it's wild it's wild cross consistently say let go of them let go of them when people said oh what do i do when i have an experience see it it's kind of a buddhist thing see it and let go of it john of the cross never wanted people like hanging on to the extraordinary vision or the extraordinary manifestation so there is the mystical for sure. And, and you know, I use my platonic thing of going from, uh, you know, the, the cave, going from physics to mathematics to metaphysics. But beyond metaphysics, there is indeed this mystical dimension of knowing. So I don't discount that for a minute. But I'm also, I've got a lot of John across me that says, be very wary of hanging on to those. And to Jonathan's point there about, you know, well, if I just take this drug, that's going to be my, my guaranteed path into the mystical. <laughs> Whatever is going on there, the, the real mystical, you know, tonight I'll be probably in front of the Blessed Sacrament at some point with uh, the rosary. And I, believe me, I'm not having any kind of LSD-like experiences, but that's the mystical as far as I'm concerned. Um, so I, I'm trying to find what's really good in that description of it, which I think it really is accurate, but I'm wary of well, clinging to it. One, there's one thing, to be clear, Go ahead. just to respond to, to Jonathan's criticism. I mean, this, the point that Jonathan is making is being recognized by people in the field. First of all, there's a, there's a distinction even in Griffith between a psychedelic experience and a mystical experience. And secondly, yeah, okay. most people are clearly indicating, for example, all the therapeutic interventions using psychedelic and the evidence is mounting that it's not the drug that does yeah. it. Right. It is the drug in in concert with the set and setting the therapeutic yeah. framework. I'm really encouraged again to just show my nuanced, hopefully what you would experience as a nuanced position on this. I, I'm really encouraged by the possibilities, the therapeutic possibilities of, um, of psychedelics in a properly controlled medical environment for people. Um, some of the research, initial research is really, really promising. And if you know anybody that has experienced like debilitating depression, anxiety. I have no problems with this being one of the ways in which God's goodness is been made manifest in the world. And maybe it is through a psychedelic mushroom. <laughs> maybe it's through what's the, the, the psilocybin in there. Um, and that, that could be a, a, a marvelous cure um, a therapeutic remedy. I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged by that possibility. All of this other stuff has, you have, and I consistently argue for this, you have to have this wrapped in a sapiential framework because it is, mm -hmm. it can just as much take you off into self-deception as it mm -hmm. can into, right, into self-correction. So, yeah. I, 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 but, but I want to be clear that there's a lot of people that take the criticisms that have been made here very seriously, and it's actually woven into a lot of the research. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting with, with regards to the scientism issue. So if you look at Griffith's research, so you, you see that his subjects take psilocybin and then they have a mystical experience and then they quit smoking or they're less afraid of death. It's like, and 
the way it's written up in the journal is it is bottom-up drug effect because there's no description of the content of the mystical experience. It's like, well, the drug produces a mystical experience and then people don't smoke. And, and the scientific journal format only allows for that. And so, but then there's this question that's like, this is a big question. It's like, okay, well, why are these people no longer afraid of death? Mm -hmm. Like, did that switch just get turned off? Well, that's not, that's not how it works there. The whole view they have of reality has been reoriented in some manner. And what manner? It's like, well, what happened exactly? That's, that's an even more key question. And it, it's relevant to Jonathan's point. And then John, to go after your, you a little bit on this topic, Jonathan is pointing to something that's 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 a very intelligent caution, mm -hmm. and that is that I know you know that I know you know that, and these these hypotheses of set and setting are they're just the beginning of that surround that needs to be created oh, yeah. to integrate these experiences into the broader culture. They're just they're you know they're not much changed from the early '60s. Well, you have to be somewhere calm. You have to be with someone who you know is going to take care of you. It's like yeah, that's we're just barely beginning to to figure out what to do with this. And then Bishop Barron, I I believe for what it's worth, and I don't know what you guys think about that. I think that Revelation is a psychedelic account, literally. Oh, the Book of Revelation. <laughs> I really believe that. You bet. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot's face there sums it up <laughs> well. Um, you know, like this for me, I think I mentioned it in the first video. I, I like, I really love listening to Peterson when he stays in his lane. He's got, I've got no problem. I love people that are high in openness like he is. And to explore this question, that's great. I... <laughs> The way that he can present things, this is this has been one of my issues, even with um, the all of the biblical series. And I get it's attracted a lot of people to open up their Bibles, and you know. <laughs> but here's the deal: I know, like, I, I sometimes feel like I'm in the minority on this position among my friends. Is that um, you know, I I grew up in a context that treated the Bible very symbolically, you know, um, we weren't concerned so much with low, uh, a coherent framework for locating meaning. And I mean, like the meaning, if we're going to use words like inspired with the scriptures, where is the inspired meaning? We didn't really think that clearly about it. Uh, we didn't think about the ramifications of if you if you got a hundred people in a room together and you gave them a chapter of the Bible and you asked them, well, what does this chapter mean? Like the problem that would emerge is if you used a particular hermeneutic where um, like 98% of, you know, 98 of 100 people like all came up with something different and how you go, well, that that functionally just makes this like the Bible like a Rorschach test, right? And so a lot of the ways that people I see kind of getting excited about what Peterson's doing with the Bible, I go, guys, you don't want to be that excited about it. I've seen this stuff and it it's not it doesn't it doesn't make for functional Christian or healthy Christian community. 
it's great when you have a really charismatic com communicator like Peterson. You know, honestly, some of the stuff that's fun when he starts thinking about the connections to evolutionary psychology and stuff, I think that's fun to explore. But it's really, really concerning to me is when we actually, um, you know, like just talk, <laughs> talk to a biblical scholar, like talk to a theologian, just ask them before you go f like thinking this stuff is true. And I I'm glad that, uh, I you know, Peugeot laughing there is great. And I'm glad they both instantly, you know, correct him on this because it's just, it just, it demonstrates a lack of even cursory engagement with serious scholarship on this. And it's so easy, you know, Revelation is a weird book in comparison to the other New Testament books, but it's not that strange in another sense. It follows, as Bishop Barron's going to talk about, and, and Peugeot affirms, it just follows typical norms and conventions for apocalyptic literature in the Second Temple period. So, like, you compare it with other apocalyptic genre writings, and you're like, yeah, it's like... It's like if you had nothing but, um, let's say nothing but like, you know, the works of Shakespeare in your library and then like someone handed you a comic book, you're like, wow, this is really, really weird and strange. But what if you got handed a comic book and then like another library full of comic books? Well, you'd go, well, I have a, a frame of reference here for how to read this. And just because the rest of the books in my library have been Shakespeare doesn't mean I have to read this and go boy, like, I don't, this is such a strange book. I mean, it's strange in some sense, but it's really not. And so the idea that like, you know, John the Revelator, John the author of Revelation, that that he was, you know, maybe stumbled across some shrooms in the island of Patmos or something, you know, it's just like, no, <laughs> no, it's just apocalyptic writing that's all it is it's really really simple to pick up on and so um yeah this that's this kind of stuff with peterson that I, I find it frustrating just from being and i'm i am not uh like I, i'm not a professional academic i've got um you know an advanced degree in theology and and and, and theological philosophy philosophical theology that's what essentially christian thought is but uh, i'm i'm not a doctor in this i'm not at bishop Barron's uh level per se but like just consult anybody please like consult anybody before you go i really think this is the answer to me that's the kind of stuff that i i go like it makes it difficult to engage somebody seriously when they don't take themselves and go, Hey, would I like, would Peterson accept some like wild claim about psychology or cognitive science or evolutionary psychology from somebody that was just floating some strange theory out there that had never been vetted by experts in the field? It's like, no, he would never accept that. And yet people do this with biblical literature all the time. It, I'm, it's kind of humorous, you know, I'm not, I don't tune him out because of it. I'm not angry. I just go, come on, buddy. <laughs> you bet. I think that the author of that had a psychedelic experience and all he did was write down what happened to him. No, it's and too that grounded. Might not in be the, right, but it's too grounded in the Old Testament, right. the, the classic apocalyptic literature. <clears throat> I mean, it's, 
Half of it is quoting why is, why is that why is that an objection yeah. why is that an objection he was grounded in that tradition and all of that tradition was was made vivid in imagery during the experience that's not be not certainly not beyond the 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 confines of such experiences so and you just don't have the evidence for it so like if i walk down into my kitchen right now and i you know we just went grocery shopping today and i find my refrigerator um to be like missing the um you know the, the 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 salsa and the chips are gone my son loves chips and salsa i can come down and i look at that evidence and i can go well boy i think space aliens <laughs> invaded the house and stole my chips and salsa and my son might come down in the morning and go, you know, he might have crumbs on his mouth. I might find the salsa next to his bed. And I, if I still go, well, I can't rule it out that space aliens came and took the chips and salsa from the fridge and the pantry. I go, well, I, I guess you can't rule it out. But it's not this is not a logical mode of inquiry when we're trying to get serious about um, where we locate meaning in cultural artifacts. It just it just isn't. But. I, you know, God bless Jordan Peterson, nonetheless, I appreciate his openness. And it's kind of a fun thing to think about. But it's like on par with the sort of the ancient aliens sort of stuff. Well, thanks, everyone for listening to today's episode, today's episode, and all of our podcasts, and even the video stuff on YouTube right now is currently made possible free of advertisement because of the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. It's people like Clint, Jesse, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, Dr. Jim, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, JT, Justin, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hawk, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Peter, Rob, Sam and Nicole, Sam P., Sarah R., and Sean C. Oh, and I can't forget Taylor S. <laughs> it's people like you that make this program possible thank you all for your generous support if you're interested in supporting on patreon there's a bunch of uh, incentives for supporting the work i'm doing there's opportunities for forum discussions for bonus q a episodes for opportunities to have um, group zoom conversations with other listeners from all over uh, north america in particular so i encourage you to check that out uh, you, you'll see a link in the description below and as always, I welcome your feedback. Uh, you can provide feedback in the discussion forums. You can reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram as well, or you can leave comments on the specific video over on YouTube. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, we will talk again soon. 